today on Ag News Daily. I'm a little bit all over the place. I, I want to play with populations. I want to kind of do something that isn't the norm of, hey, let's see where these plants can really be the most efficient and productive. So, Well, a happy Friday to all those Ag News Daily podcast listeners out there. My name is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts, joined as always by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Good afternoon, Delaney. It is sunny. It is warm-ish, warm for fall, I mm-hmm. suppose. Farmers are up and running across Iowa. I've seen a ton of combines out in the field today. Yeah, it's a nice day for it. It is. It's perfect. Hopefully those crops have dried down a little bit now that we've uh, had about a week or so without much rain. Yeah, I think we maybe got a little rain in western Iowa yesterday, but for the most part, it's been staying pretty dry. It has indeed. And, you know, speaking of dry, we're going to have a conversation with Jared McDaniel here in just a little bit about crops and cows and podcasts and everything. And they were dry, literally no rain, for over mm. 200 days. Wow. Yeah, different world down the there. Panhandle area, is that right? That is correct. Yeah, so down that's a pretty Texoma. dry area. Right, right, that's right. It is. It is. So we'll get to Jared here in just a bit. But Delaney, what news do you have for us here on this Friday? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a slower news day, but I do have a little bit here. I'm going to kick it off with some trade-related news, specifically when we look at the Margin margin Facilitation Program, Market Facilitation Program, or MFP. Secretary Purdue has been touring quite a diff- few different places this week, talking about E15, amongst other things, but he made a comment yesterday I thought was pretty interesting, um, and that was in regards to those states that have been hit by hurricane damage, which we talked a little bit about. With Ashley Arrington is okay. Well, now we've got this market facilitation program. Should those producers get that as well as hurricane relief package disaster uh, money? And that may not be the case. So it sounds like Purdue is, I guess, trying to go back through now and, and figure that out. And he said, quote, I've asked our staff to look at the fact we believe the payments should be based on actual production and not county averages. But I think we've got to look at situations where people had crops that were good crops that were totally obliterated. He also followed Mm -hmm. up and said, these safety net programs don't contemplate that. And I think if Congress is generous enough to give us another supplemental regarding a disaster program for Hurricane Florence and Michael, then we need to look at those kind of considerations. And he also said there will be a second round of payments to tariff hit producers. He didn't say when that would be, but it's interesting because just like a day ago, he said that the government had no plans to extend these programs to farmers. So interesting. You know, I, I wonder though, if they extend the market facilitation program to crops that were wiped out, you know, what, what about hail in right. the upper Midwest or wind damage, all of a sudden now, is does that qualify? And if it doesn't, is that fair? I don't know. But hmm. I have another piece to go off of that. So I was also reading an article today because Senator Chuck Grassley, Iowa's uh, senior senator, suggested on Thursday that companies like Smithfield and JBS, which are owned by either the Chinese or Brazilian or foreign entities should also not be eligible for relief package because at this point in time they are. And so an interesting article on the Washington Post just published a couple of days ago um, talking about this specific issue because of the 
bailout package. Part of that is the $1.2 billion of surplus food that the USDA is planning to buy. And that's about $560 million in pork purchases, which they're going to buy from people like JBS, China, or, uh, Smithfield, etc. And so a USDA spokesman said that, quote, the USDA does not have the ability to police whether money will eventually filter to the Chinese. Sure. Yeah, that would be we'd be adding a whole new layer of bureaucracy, I think, if we were going to try and track that. Yeah, but it is it's a very interesting and I think relevant point that why should I don't know, why should they get government bailout money if it is a well, Chinese company? I don't know, at I'm the not end saying they're wrong, producing but... hogs in the US. Right. I mean, even Smithfield Pork, which their CEO came out today and said there is no sense in exporting pork to China with these tariffs is that it can't be done. Mm-hmm. But if Smithfield were to send pork to China, it would be hit with uh, the Chinese pork tariff because there's no differentiation on, you know, what company right. supplies it. It's just U.S. pork. I just thought it was really interesting. Yeah. And when you're when like Senator Grassley, you're watching taxpayer dollars. I think that's a good point to make. But I just don't know how you'd police it. I don't know either. I don't think there is a, a good way to do that. No, not without hiring a lot more bureaucrats, which I guess would be job creation, I suppose. Uh-huh. I guess so. Well, speaking of job creation and gross domestic product, or GDP, it increased at 3.5% in the U.S. in the third quarter. That is good news. A little slower than a lot of economists had predicted. Of course, there was the tariff-related drop in soybean exports, but that was partially offset by the strongest consumer spending in nearly four years. So we're still on target to hit President Trump's growth target of 3% per year. Anytime, Delaney, I hear big GDP numbers, I think this is good for protein producers. This is good for beef producers. Right. Anybody selling something higher value when folks have money, that's when they buy a, you know, a well-marbled ribeye or a, an Iowa chop on the pork side or even, you know, wacky organic and natural foods. All those things go mm-hmm. up when people have money. Well, speaking of a well-marbled ribeye, we've gotten the latest monthly trade data for the month of August, and U.S. beef continues to be impressive in their exports. Month over month, they were up up they were up nine percent, and then year to date exports for beef were up fourteen point two percent, and that's even considering the uh, I guess it's not a huge market loss, but definitely a market loss of going beef going into China that has decreased about forty seven and a half percent since May of beef going to China, but Japan is definitely a large market share at 28.8% of U.S. beef, followed by South Korea at 206 and Mexico at 14.1%. So I'm just yeah. baffled by that, continuing to see strong domestic and also very strong international demand for beef. Yeah, and when we hear that Chinese statistic, would you say 47% drop yeah. since May? Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of a little bit out of context because there really wasn't much beef imported. So it only takes a little bit of a drop to get a huge percentage. So, you know, that's something we need to keep in mind. But, yeah, the Japanese, the South Koreans, man, they are loving that U.S. beef, which is great Mm -hmm. news. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to bring it back to the pork industry for just a little bit. Reuters had a great interview with Ken Mashoff, who is the chairman of the largest U.S. family-owned pork producer. Of course, that's the Mashoffs. And uh, 
he said that because of the trade war and because of the uncertainty that uh, domestic pork producers face, they have canceled $30 million in uh, expected spending, basically wow. on infrastructure and on new barns. And they say they might be looking to move some operations overseas so they can dodge some of these tariffs and still get their pork into China. Ken mm. Mashoff says investing in domestic operations now would be, quote, ludicrous as China and others are retaliating against U.S. agricultural goods. That's not a great sign right there. No, $30 million is a big back off. It is. And all of that, you know, I imagine the majority of it would have gone to rural communities, you know, bringing Junior yeah. back to the farm with two hog barns and so forth. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Yeah. Maybe we're yeah. going to see a, a point here of, I mean, we've been in a really big time of pork expansion. Maybe we're going to start to pull the reins back in a little bit. It sounds like it. And it also sounds like they're doing the same thing in China. This Reuters article also talked to a Chinese hog farmer whose name I will mispronounce, but I think it's Ji Yinquang. And he has sent most of his 1,000 head herd to slaughter because the soybean tariffs have right, jacked up the price mm -hmm. of feed so much. Mm, I'm not surprised. I mean, yep. and he has now the potential impact of African swine fever. So maybe right. that was a good call. Yeah, I think it probably was for uh, Ki or Ji. <laughs> Good try. Yeah, Mr. Ying Quang. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, a little bit of news. I don't really think it's news. I've been reading a lot about ethanol this morning. President or uh, Secretary Purdue has been talking about it as he's been on the road a lot this week. A lot of different reports. So it, I, I think it's hard to cut through the chatter at this point. And it almost sounds like Purdue has been... What's the word I'm looking for? Not negating himself, but kind of going back and forth. One day he says one thing, the next day he kind of sounds like he says another. And so it sounds like there's going to be, of course, a lot of difficulty to get E15 year round in place before June. Um, the Trump administration has asked basically to see the legislation or writing in February. They've asked for that ruling or legislation to come in to February, during February, but we do absolutely see car manufacturers responding to the news of E15 year-round, and it's expected that in 2019, more than 93% of 2019 cars and trucks are going to be approved for the use of E15, which is up about 5% from 2018. It seems Good like two, yeah, really only two auto lines are not really on the list for E15, and that's Mercedes-Benz and Mazda. Hmm, interesting. You know, Mazda has done some really interesting work with uh, high-compression, smaller engines that would really be ideal for ethanol, so I'm surprised they're not on that list. Not at this point in time. Interesting. Well, Delaney, we have a very, very good discussion yes. with Jared McDaniel to play. Should we hit the markets and jump right into that for our Friday episode? Let's do it, Mike. Alrighty, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. Take advantage while you're in the combine. Start thinking about your marketing plan for 2019. Give our friends at Zaner a call. You can reach them at 312-277-0050, or you can visit them on the web at Zaner, 
com. Well, we finished the week with some green on the screen. In corn, the December contract up six and three quarter cents at three sixty seven and three quarters. The March up six and a half to finish the week at three eighty even. Soybeans also a little higher on the day. November contract up three and a quarter at eight forty five even. January also up three and a quarter cents, finished at eight fifty seven and three quarters. Wheat was the big gainer today. In the Chicago contract, December up eighteen cents, finished at five oh five and a quarter, while the March was up sixteen and a half to close at five twenty four and a quarter. Looking over the world of livestock, once again, we've got green all the way down the screen. In live cattle, the October contract was up 52.5 cents at 113.8750. The December was up $1.32.5 at 118.40. In feeder cattle, the November contract closed higher by 85 cents at 154.80. The January up 65 cents, finished at 149.70. And in lean hogs, the December contract up $1.15 at 57.92.5, with the February up $1.80. 8250 to close the week at 6637 and a half. Really the only commodity left out of today's rally was sadly dairy. In class 3 milk the October contract was unchanged on the day at 1553 while the November was down a nickel to close the week at 1506. Let's jump into our conversation with Jared McDaniel, rancher, row crop farmer, podcaster down in the Oklahoma panhandle. Today, folks, we are talking to Jared McDaniel. He is a farmer and rancher down around Texoma, Oklahoma, down on the Panhandle, also known as No Man's Land. Jared, how you doing? I'm good. I might be the only guy left here. <laughs> well, now, you know, before we get talking too much, last spring, well, throughout the winter and into the spring, you guys were tremendously dry. How many days did you go without rain? We had like 200 days. We had a, almost like a World Series home run streak of non, non-consecutive days without <laughs> without rain. It was 200 plus days with no moisture, Jeez. and so it was wild. Yeah, and then finally moisture came through, and, and walk us through what kind of crops do you guys grow down there in the panhandle? Uh, I'm primarily corn. There's a lot of corn and cotton. Uh used to be a lot of wheat, not as much wheat anymore. I think it's probably going to make a comeback as guys get into rotation. Uh, of course, a lot of hay for the cattle operations, a little alfalfa here and there, but primarily just anything that will go to support the, you know, the industry of the hogs, the feedlots, the kind of the animal confined feeding operations out here. That's kind of the backbone of what we raise. Now, and you're a cow-calf producer. You're, you're a rancher down there. You bet. You bet. That's, that's half of my job. I, did, I farm half the year and I ranch half the year, and then those two overlap quite a bit. So talk us through a little bit. What, what can you tell us about your herd? What kind of genetics are you running? Do you have any breed preferences down there on the panhandle? Uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, we pretty much went all Angus, you know, joined the, joined the black hide revolution with everybody and, and have predominantly just kind of focused on getting mainly high-end Angus genetics, a lot of Gardner genetics in our herd. Um, we're getting to the point that I think it's about time to kind of maybe evolve past that where we do a little more crossbreeding. Uh, maybe looking at Charlay, even even the dreaded Hereford word, that seems to be something people used to cringe when you said that. But I think we're losing some heterosis in our cross-feeding program. So we'll probably move move back into that arena over the next couple of years. Um, for the most part, just a cow-calf operation. I've retained ownership back through the feedlot, you know, went to the grid and marketed through that. I really like the information you get from it. Uh, cash flow-wise, it's kind of hard to justify not having your money for another eight months to go feed them. But, you yeah. know. It costs something, so we've 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 expanded in that arena and started to do a little bit of our own backgrounding and vertical mixing of our own feed rations and you know just like everything we've 
continued to get more efficient and kind of co-mingled that with the farming operation where we graze corn stalks with cows and, you know, really try to make it a holistic approach of, okay, the farming and ranching have to complement each other and, and help help the each other pay its own bills. Absolutely. So. I mean, the the material that's going in the front end of a cow is great on the field coming out the back end. You know, I mean, they, right. they do work together real well. Now, Jared, you said something there that I'm guessing a lot of our row crop producer listeners, perhaps our, our listeners who aren't involved in the ag industry directly, didn't understand. You mentioned you retained ownership, so you held on to your calves all the way through the feedlot, and then you marketed them on the grid. What was that like, and, and what does that mean, I guess, first and foremost? Okay, well, from the, from the most layman's terms I can use, the grid is essentially where you get paid for the quality of your product. So when an animal gets slaughtered and, and the carcass is hung on the rail, you will get paid based based upon or according to the quality of the animal, whether it grades select, choice, prime, and what, you know, the yield grade, and then how that stands up to the benchmark of the industry for that time period when the animal is slaughtered. So if you have better cattle, better than average, you're likely going to get a, a what's called a premium. You'll get paid more for that animal. So, you know, the idea is that if your animals are better and you want to quantify that, then you will try to sell on the grid so that, you know, and I did it. I don't know that I was extremely above par, but I was I was far enough above the average that I did receive some premium. What it does is it kind of allows me to benchmark myself to the rest of the industry and say, here's where I'm at. How do I get higher or lower for, you know, get paid for a quality product? Now, with that being said, there's a very small segment that actually go to the grid marketing. Most everything is done on a commodity basis where you get paid for this many pounds at this price, and that's just what it is. So in an attempt to kind of leverage maybe some of our genetic improvement or some of those things that we've done to build a better product, I want to be able to go get paid for that. And the means to get paid for it is you have to go market through, uh, and I believe it's U.S. Premium Beef as a grid I was on. I don't know if there's more than that. I'm sure there is. That's just the one that's associated with the slaughter or packing houses within my area. Gotcha. Gotcha. And now I want to circle back to your operation holistically. You've got the cow-calf operation. You're making that work for you on both ends. And then, of course, you've got the row crops. And uh, you're predominantly a corn grower. How were yields this year? How did things shape up for you? Well, we're off to a slow start. We've only got maybe 300 or so acres out. Um, we keep getting, which is hard to say here, we keep getting slowed down by rain. Oh, wow. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often, but we we had about a four-and-a-half-inch rain event and really kind of got the fields more saturated than I'd like, and then we had another rain yesterday. But So we are, we're slowly getting back into it. Uh, all in all, I'm, I'd say the yields are average, maybe a little above average out here. Um, I've heard some good reports from guys. Uh, last year was a horrible year out here because we had the, the Fumonison debacle where you had a lot of mycotoxins come into the corn because of the really, really wet wet year and the, and the conditions that promoted that. We don't seem to be having that this year. Um, really, for the most part, I'm, I, I guess I'm okay with the corn crop. I'll know more in a couple of weeks how okay I am with it. <laughs> yeah. If, it, if from the road and from the, when you start harvesting, there's always ups and downs. And I'm sure everybody understands this. When you first start, you just hope it doesn't, it's not a horrible disaster. And I, I don't think we're at that point. I think we're at, it's going to be okay. So. Now, are, are you irrigated? Is this all dry land corn? How does that set up down there? I, I'm a little bit of everything. I kind of Frankenstein my corn crop where I've got, I've got fully irrigated that I really kind of shoot the moon, you know, let's see if we can get 300 bushel type production. Then I've got some some semi-irrigated that maybe only gets water whenever when it's possible. You know, I kind of I, I rob Peter to pay Paul. I take the 
the water off the good circles, give them to the semi-irrigated. I try to stretch that, you know, water's our most limiting nutrient here. So if I can stretch that further and become more efficient, then I'll raise some semi-irrigated. And then I do some straight-up dry land, which, you know, in an arid climate is probably the most irrational thing you could do. But <laughs> the, I, I'm, I love going down this road because I get to toy with populations and ideas and yeah. things that maybe are unconventional. And, you know, for the most part, last year, really, really pleased with dry land. And I think guys have, have hit a home run up in Kansas with some of that stuff this year. So I'm a little bit all over the place. I'm, I want to play with populations. I want to kind of do something that isn't the norm of, hey, let's see where these plants can really be the most efficient and productive. So, you know, it's hard to it's hard to compare apples to oranges when you say, okay, irrigated is doing this, semi-irrigated, dry land. You know, there's almost three different categories of production that I'm trying to really hit a goal of. A- absolutely. Entirely different production systems, different practices, different uh, different goals, and then, of course, different inputs you as you look at the different uh, uh, styles of, of production. Now, you mentioned something, and this is something that really I wanted to pick your brain about. Jared, a couple months ago, you talked about going extremely low population on your corn. Tell us, why are you thinking about that, and what kind of, uh, what are you hoping to achieve? And, and I guess what population level do you consider as, as a low population? You bet, you bet. Well, and again, back to the, in our arid climate, water being the most limiting factor. I know this sounds strange to some people who actually tile their land to get water away, <laughs> but I'm, I'm the other end of that extreme in that I want, you know, I have to bring water to the table. So I, my most effective method is to use that, water efficiently and the best way to do that is to create one plant that is will hopefully do one giant ear or maybe two multiple ears you know let's go the let's not build multiple factories let's make one factory more efficient so in the realm of like what populations and kind of the deep recess of this like a high full irrigated population like 32 33,000 is probably the top end mm-hmm. in a semi-arid I'm finding that somewhere between 18 to 22, 25,000 seems to be a good number, even maybe down as low as 16, 17,000. And then dry land, last year I was running 12,000 population, 12 to 13,000. So, and with those numbers, and I, and I, I want, this is what I'm finding out. Rather than quantifying in yield bushel per acre, I'm going to look at it in yield bushel per thousand seeds planted because that's the only way you can kind of keep a continuous comparison across these three levels is how if you put a thousand seeds out there, how many bushels am I going to get? And what I'm finding, the old standard metric of, okay, you plant a thick field and you get seven, eight bushels per acre. And so in order to get more yield on that field, you just got to push the population up and then find out how to make those plants where they don't lose that seven to eight number. What I'm finding is that when you cut population back, you're looking more in the 10 bushel per hundred or per 10 bushel per thousand plants, or maybe even upwards of 13 bushels per thousand plants. So when you start changing that ratio, that multiplier, you, things get a little wonky and they get different. Yeah. But I mean, you see 12,000 population corn that I've seen make 160, 170 bushel. I've seen 15,000 make 200 bushel. I've seen 25,000 in a field I just got. I've seen a spot that did hit 300 bushel. And, had I not witnessed this and done it myself, I'd think that somebody was crazy when they told me that. And the key of that, key, key to that is flex. You've got to have flex to allow yourself to maximize that space that you're giving that plant, the space to accumulate sunlight, to use its root mass, to get more nutrients, to become that more efficient plant that maybe through the methodology of let's cram every plant on every acre and kind of really try to jam that in and make multiple ears, well, you know, instead of instead of going down that road, I'm saying let's make more ears. Just do it with less plants. Right. So make those ears perform even better. And Jared, 
I got to ask you, if this idea catches on, you're probably going to get in some be getting some door knocks from uh, seed corn companies not loving this plan. I, you know, I don't know. I, I haven't had any of them that have been really robust with uh, endorsing me. <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the ironic thing, and I've talked about this on other platforms. What happened whenever I started growing low population corn is I actually bought more corn seed, which is because I'm planting it on more acres, sure. and I'm doing. I'm, I'm. What I'm doing is I'm looking at from a just a dollar, you know, profit model. I can make more money with uh, low population corn than I can even a fully irrigated Milo circle because of the basis difference in our in our you know price that we would receive for that grain or other outside factors that'll drive into it with you've got to spray for sugarcane aphid in our area you know there's multiple things that will drive you away from alternative crops and, and for wheat wheat's been in the dungeons for so long that I think we've forgotten that it was even there and we've thrown away the key and, and bricked over the entrance to it. Like, it's been, yeah. it's yeah. been so long since people have legitimately tried to raise a wheat crop. Now, we've had wheat crops in the, in, in the western United States, but for the most part, you know, it takes so much to, to, to reach a profitable level with wheat if you do it right that, you know, you it's not – the margin is not there to invest the capital, in my opinion. So right. as of right now – you're going to grow it as cheap as you can. You bet. You bet. And that gets you so far down the road until you run out of nutrients and everything else. Mm -hmm. So as a, as a practical means of survival, this is where I'm at. Now, if wheat goes to $10, I may throw my low-population corn deal on the back burner and go back to raising wheat. You know, I'm, not, I'm an opportunist in that I just want – I want to go where the – where the money leads me for the Absolutely. time being. Absolutely. Now, where the money leads you, I think that's a question that's on the minds of a lot of folks in agriculture in 2018 as we look ahead to 2019. Jared, one of the reasons I want to have you on is you host a podcast called Ag Uncensored. And with that podcast, I know you are in conversations both on the pod and, of course, on Twitter and other platforms with farmers from around the country and around the world. What's your take? Is the industry in as bad a shape as some of the doomsayers are predicting? Wow. Uh, yeah, thanks for the plug. I agree. Agon Sensor is awesome. <laughs> no, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I, I really think that I think there's a lot of kind of uh, stuff that's been pushed back in the back in the back closets of people's financial houses. I think there's a lot of things that have been kind of glossed over in the terms of there's equity that people have in their operation, and I think we've carved up a lot of the equity for people to stay in business. Now, where where you've got a decent amount of land to put on a balance sheet, you probably aren't in bad shape because you, you always have that as a backstop. Where you don't have land, where you're strictly running as a cash flow, cash flow operation, I think some of those, in my opinion, they're going to really struggle. And I don't think you hear a lot about it because no one really likes to talk about it. Now we're we're at the point where guys are still making a little money and good managers can still do well. It's not like a a completely black and white where some guys are just doing great and some are horrible. I think there's many different shades of this of this palette where some guys are really going to struggle to to get financed next year because you just look at the inputs that are now going up. Grain is relatively stagnant because of the oversupply. You know, we're kind of in that situation that reminds me of the early 2000s where you just pencil out a little bit of profit and try to get to next year. You know, we're all holding on for the next for the next home run derby where we can all sit up and, you know, take the softball pitches and try to try to knock it out. Right. And, and that worked out for growers in 2000s. I mean, if you were able to stay in business from 1998 through 2004, then things got fun again. 
You bet. I, and I feel I feel very much like that's where we're at. I started in really whole hog in 99. This is kind of whenever, I mean, I started doing some book work in 95, but 99 was the first crop that I kind of, in, you know, took part in. And so I, when I got in it, I, this is what it was like. You just buckle down, you, you bought a little bit of stuff, what you had to, and you, you made by, you got by with what you had. And I feel a lot of people are in that mode. I think that I, I really think that input suppliers, be it chemical feed, um, you know, the people who are selling the stuff to the farmers, those are the ones that might get squeezed too, because if you don't have money, you can't go buy the things that you need to do or, you know, you just kind of push the envelope a little bit, and that's that. That's what anybody would do in that situation. Absolutely, uh, tough times breed experimentation. Tough times breed creativity. They have to. You bet. You bet. And and some good things will come out of this. It's yes, not all bad. You know, there'll be stuff that that pops up that innovations and the the thing that worries me just kind of in the in the grand scheme of things is is we're continuing this dance that we've done for decades of let's just find the next efficiency that we can squeeze a little bit out of and we just keep squeezing and squeezing and squeezing and and at some point there's nothing left there's nothing left to come out of it you know that that concerns me i don't have any specific numbers that's just a generalization that i i see a from visiting and talking with people. Right, right. Eventually the cost for that next gain in efficiency just doesn't justify it. You bet, you bet. And and the turmoil or, you know, we're one step away. What if we get outsourced and somebody says, well, we don't need to buy the food here. We could buy it somewhere else. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a legitimate thing. And, and sometimes people don't know how valuable something is till it's gone. And And there's really no way, I don't know how you express that, you know, until the consumer sees what it's like to not have a local, you know, nationally sourced food, maybe they get to another country and in that country decides that they don't want to give us food, then it will become an issue. But at that point, is the is the factory already shut down here locally? I mean, that's that's a very ethereal, forward thinking deal, but it's definitely in the in the reality. It is. I mean, when you look to the future, everything is a reality. We never know what's coming around the pipe. Now, Jared, before we let you go, we mentioned the Ag Uncensored podcast. If listeners want to get more of your thoughts, more of your opinions, and your conversations with other agriculturalists, where can they find it, and when do you publish? Uh, well, publish whenever I kind of get around to it. <laughs> this, this, is, this is far less than organized. Uh, if in a perfect world I'd get something out every Friday, that doesn't always happen with you know maintaining a real job and everything else that goes along with it. But uh, right now, you just basically have to find me on Twitter, just at Jared McDaniel, or you know the hashtag Ag Uncensored. I don't really have a website. I have a website, but it's it is uh, maintained by me, which means that it it looks. Uh, like it's maintained by me. You bet. So you bet. It's an <laughs> Adam and Corn Growers website, not a web designer's website. Exactly, exactly. But part of this process that I've that I've found is I, I want to learn how to do it. So I'm learning at my own speed. But so far, you know, we're kind of kind of like a pirate radio. We're out there just doing it in in our own speed in our own world. And you know, people have definitely joined in. And I've I've absolutely humbled by how many people have have. Uh, gave me positive comments and great feedback and things and you know it seems seems like guys enjoy it so we're going to keep doing it for the time being and see what happens fantastic folks check it out we just finished talking to jared mcdaniel from texoma oklahoma jared thanks for taking the time to chat with us you bet thanks for having me on well delaney there we have it cows crops podcast we kind of ran the gamut here for this friday episode yeah i'm sorry i gotta miss that but it definitely was a perfect friday interview to wrap up the week i think 
You bet. A lot of stuff to think about. Absolutely. And if listeners want to think about other things, they can find stuff in our old episodes. Delaney, where can they mm-hmm. go to get them? That's right, Mike. They can head to agnewsdaily.com to listen to all of our past episodes. At this point in time, we've got a new website launched. I don't want to announce it quite yet because we're still putting the final touches on it, but it's going to be, as we mentioned before, the Global Ag Network. It's going to be a conglomeration of agriculturally focused podcasts. So we'll be talking more about that next week. But in the meantime, you can interact with us on Facebook and on Twitter if you have comments, questions, concerns, jokes. Anything. Find us on Facebook and Twitter pictures, at Ag News Daily. Pictures. pictures of your Mephistopheles costume. Oh, yes. For all those people celebrating Halloween this weekend. I'm sure Mike would appreciate that. Yeah. Mike, what do you say? Should we let the people go? Let's let them go.